What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. Today is Friday, February 4th, 2022. I am your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how was your week? Matt, my week was pretty good, buddy. Um, you know what, though? It really does not matter because today's your birthday! <laughs> You're too kind. Yeah, my birthday was on Wednesday. Um, and because of that, we're going to do one less quick hit than usual because I wanted to relax after work this week. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. You got to treat yourself. Yeah. Treat yourself. Speaking of uh, treating, my mom got me a Barnes and Noble gift card. So that was awesome. Got a bunch of books off my list. So thank you, mom. Oh. That was great. You know, Barnes and Noble gift cards are the gift that just keep on giving knowledge, power, <laughs> love it. Yeah, I could I could kill a lot of time in a Barnes and Noble because they have board games. We all know I love board games. They have their Barnes <laughs> and Noble music section. I'd go look at some vinyl records and, you know, kill a lot of time there. Yeah. And then, oh, I don't know. It's a bookstore. There's a ton of books I like. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a great gift. And also some of the clips we're going to start putting out next week from this week's recording if I look way better, it's because Kaylee got me a light thing. Nice. That, that, I don't know what to call it. It's like a <laughs> ring of light that makes me look not not dark. It makes you look like the sun is shining on your face and it's 75 degrees. So I think that's never a bad thing. The sun is shining. The tank is clean. Let's get into the show. And we are getting out of here. Welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we're happy to have you as a listener. Yeah, and like we say every single week, go rate the show on Apple and also Spotify if you have the ability to. And also, like we say every week, rate a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us out. It's going to be therapeutic to, you know, flex those fingers a little bit. We write stuff for you. Show us your writing ability. Show us those reviews. We are the anti-carpal tunnel podcast. Use those fingers, <laughs> baby. All right, let's get into our quick hits for the week. So the first one is by Rachel Treisman of NPR, and she writes, A California redwood forest has officially been returned to a group of native tribes. So Nick and I talked about returning national parks to native tribes all the way back in June 2021 as part of our first episode. So I thought this one was pretty cool. It's a nice little follow-up to that story. If you haven't listened to that one, our audio and our show as a whole has gotten a lot better since then. So check it out. It's a good show, but take it with a grain of salt. It was our first time ever podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Conservation group Save the Redwoods League purchased Andersonia West on the lost coast of California's Mendocino County in July 2020. And last week, the group donated the 523 acre forest to the Intertribal Cinquione Wilderness Council. 
The Intertribal Cinquion Wilderness Council consists of 10 Northern Californian tribal nations that focus on preservation of both the environment and their cultures. The forest will be renamed Si'ileidan, which means fish run place in the Cinquion language. And that was the traditional name for the land before European American settlers displaced the native tribes there. So they're bringing it back to what it was called before all this colonization. The league announced that renaming the forest represents cultural empowerment and a celebration of the resilience of indigenous peoples. The league will limit use of the land so that it can remain largely preserved and protected. Yeah, I think this is fantastic. And I highly advise everyone to go to savetheredwoods.org and check out the video of Andersonia West, which is obviously now Fish Run Place, just so you can see how beautiful the land really is. Like, it is captivating. Like, there's water right right on the edge of the, of the tree line. It's beautiful. It was really gorgeous. It's almost like this is uh, something worth protecting, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thought something from the article that Krista Ray, who is a tribal citizen of the Scotts Valley Band and a board member of the Sinkion Council said, uh, was, was really interesting. And she brought up how it lets people know that this is a sacred place. It's a place for our native people. It lets them know that there was a language and that there were people who lived there long before now. It's important to learn about, honor, and preserve the cultures of people who have been here since before the United States has been here. So I really liked her quote, and I'm glad that you know she brought that up in this article. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that kind of goes into what our Monday episode is about, the documentary, The Last Ice. Go watch it if you haven't. The council said they'll be protecting the environment there by preventing habitat loss, commercial timber operations, construction, and other development. The plan is to rely on traditional indigenous place-based land guardianship ideas, conservation science, climate adaptation, and fire resiliency concepts to both heal and preserve the area. Yeah, and I thought that, you know, what you just brought up with the documentary, like Nick said, if you haven't seen it yet, spoiler, this was one of my favorites we've watched, and I'm really excited to talk about it. Absolutely. We'll get into that on Monday's episode. Um, As for now, it's that same kind of principle of environmental stewardship and the idea behind place-based land guardianship is that if you live there, it is your responsibility to protect the area. And I think this is good news for the people and their culture, but it's also definitely good news for the northern spotted owl, the steelhead trout, coho salmon, marble merlet, and yellow-legged frog who are all endangered species that live in this area. So... Yeah, this is just an all-around cool story, and I'm glad we got to talk about it today. I agree, yeah. And then kind of an awesome callback to one of our first episodes, too, like you said, so. Yeah, our very first. Our very our very first? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was that article. Um, It was called Give the Parks Back to Native People, I think, Yeah, something, something along those lines. But yep. yeah, it was a really, really good article. We should revisit that. <laughs> Next week's episode, check it out. <laughs> All right, so this next one up is also from NPR, where Nathan Rott writes, a federal judge canceled major oil and gas leases over climate change. And it can also be heard on NPR's Morning Edition. So this is another example of a world leader saying one thing on the global stage and then trying to do another for a short-term boost to the economy. The Biden administration held the largest oil and gas lease sale in U.S. history last year, days after saying the U.S. would cut its emissions at COP26. In November 2021, 80 million acres of land in the Gulf of Mexico went up for auction. But here's some good news for you on this fine Friday. A federal judge blocked the sale last Thursday. NPR says environmentalists described the sale as a, quote, huge climate bomb. So this blockage is considered a win. 
The judge was able to block it because the Biden administration did not adequately consider the cost to the climate, which is honestly a step in the right direction for the courts, because we've spoken about externalities here before. And this sort of emphasizes a legal precedence that those externalities need to be considered. And just as a refresher, if you haven't heard the episodes where we talked about it, or maybe this is something new for you, an externality is essentially that third effect that happens in any sort of transaction. So for this, it's we sell land, that way developers can extract the oil from it. The environmental harm that comes from that is the third effect or the externality. Yeah. Checks and balances, baby. Like federal judge telling Biden, hey, you didn't do your work, dude. Like this is a complete game changer. If we can continue to have federal judges that are willing to stand up for the communities that will be severely damaged by climate change, I think that's a huge step in the right direction. Yeah, th- that's also just tough though, because like you can't really legislate from the bench. You got to go with what's legal. So this setting that legal precedence that hey, you need to consider the environmental costs and you need to address what this is going to do for the climate. It makes it so that you can consider those things that you're bringing up. So yeah, this is, like you said, it's a step in the right direction. The reason that it was blocked also is because the Biden administration used an analysis done by the previous administration and environmental groups said that that analysis is, quote, critically flawed. So Earth Justice's senior attorney, Brittany Hardy, said... We are pleased that the court invalidated Interior's illegal lease sale. We simply cannot continue to make investments in the fossil fuel industry to the peril of our communities and increasingly warming planet. So the Biden administration has promised to review U.S. oil and gas leases to make sure climate change is adequately accounted for. And with that, I don't know if this was a diet starts Monday kind of thing or (laughs) climate change was adequately accounted for in this attempt to get more oil kind of thing. Either way, it's a good thing that it was blocked. So happy to hear this. Yeah. And I feel like Biden is the kid in college who's like, dude, I got all the work from like last year's class with the same teacher (laughs) and I'm going to just like use it for this year's class. And it just does not work out. Like that's pretty much what he did here. Yeah. And you know, we're we're harder professors now than we were last time around because we had no environmental expectations. We're like, please God, just do literally anything else. And now it's like, hey, you said you're going to do these things that are going to help out climate change mitigation. Do it. We're going to hold you accountable. So this isn't totally over here because the Biden administration can choose to do a new analysis on the area. But luckily for us and for the environment, the environmental groups that fought this, including Earth Justice, say they're ready to go if it comes to that. Hell yeah. Love that energy. (laughs) Let's go. 2022, starting off on the right foot. And I think right now would probably be the best time for us to take a break, Maddie. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. And when we get back, two more quick hits for you to send you off on your weekends. Nick, I was uh, in the office last week on on Tuesday, and this is a true story. You will never guess what happened to me. What happened? My boss came up to me. He's a listener of the show, so uh, shout out to him if he's listening right now, and walks by, we make eye contact, and out of his pocket, he goes, I got my Val Alta. And I was like, <laughs> yes, let's go. <laughs> yeah, I think he got a couple for Christmas, so. Oh, that's <laughs> incredible. 
I love it. Yeah, it was it was cool to be an influencer in real life, I guess. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Go get them, guys. Valaalta.co. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Our next quick hit is from Vox, and it's titled Parasites That Thrive in a Warming Planet Are Killing Minnesota's Moose by Liz Sheetans. Yeah, so this one is uh, one that hits close to home because little known fun fact for a brief period of time, Nick's nickname was Moose. Yeah, it sure was, dude. I can't (laughs) believe I was actually going to mention that later on. (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry, I, b- I buried the lead. Or That's okay. Maybe I didn't. I don't really know what that phrase means. You buried the lead. We'll, we'll look into that. We'll go for it. <laughs> so this one starts off with an interesting story about April McCormick, and it, she tells a story about her first time hunting a moose as a teenager. And look, I know what some of you are thinking because it's the same thought that I had when I was first introduced to this idea in college. How come you're talking about hunting on a conservation show? So we want to just quickly touch on the differences between hunting, trophy hunting, and poaching. So hunting, a lot of it is a connection with nature and getting back to your roots. And one of the important things is utilizing every part of the animal. So I personally don't have an issue with people hunting for food. And especially now that some predator populations are down, so think wolves, hunting helps keep prey population in check. So think deer. What I do have an issue with is trophy hunting, because now you're just talking about killing bears and, you know, stuff like that, that doesn't really do anything for you, except you get to mount an animal and put it on the wall and be like, hey, look how cool I am. And yeah, I don't really think it's that cool. (laughs) And then, of course, there's poaching, which is just illegally hunting animals, which, look, I cannot state how against that we are, especially because oftentimes it's the hunting of endangered species. Um, it brings in more money on the black market, but what what is it worth? Yeah, right. Like it's what are you doing there? Uh, uh, listen, I'm all for people hunting for food. Like if if that's the way that you get your food, absolutely, hundred percent. Like some people completely depend on it. I am completely cool with it. But what I don't get down with is uh, over hunting or just killing animals in general for like fun or sport. You know, or hunting animals legally. That's just something that I will never endorse and, and never do myself. Yeah, to be honest with you, I'm not a hunter. I've I've never done it. I don't really have an interest in it, but that's not to say it's it's wrong. I know a lot of conservationists who are really big into hunting and they love being out in the woods and just connecting with nature. And then they bring home dinner for the next like seven days with, with one deer. So yeah. look, I get it. It's It's not for me, but that's not to say it's wrong. Like we said though, hunting for sport, just to mount an animal on the wall. Maybe let's reevaluate that if that were, that's what we're doing. Yeah, 
So the author mentions that a single moose can provide over 700 pounds of meat, which can feed an entire family throughout the winter. But climate change has brought a new series of challenges to moose populations, such as disease. Warming temperatures have made it easier for certain types of parasitic brainworms to survive, which entered the region through white-tailed deer, which are unharmed by the brainworm. White-tailed deer don't usually share habitat with North American moose, but since temperatures are warmer, they have started to encroach onto moose territory. And the way this all works is brainworms can hatch into a deer's bloodstream and then get out to the forest floor through deer feces. From there, slugs will start to break that down and then transport the brainworms to shrubs. Those shrubs then get eaten by moose, and that's your cycle right there. So the brainworm is going to result in either starvation or hypothermia related to a loss in body fat for moose. So either way, the brainworm is making it so they don't eat enough to survive once they're infected. The second biggest moose killer that's benefiting from warmer temperatures are ticks. Ticks can survive throughout the winter by latching onto moose's warm fur. They used to die out over the winter, but with more ticks surviving, more ticks are breeding. Ticks, along with being deadly, can be very itchy for moose, so a tick-infected moose can be spotted missing 60 to 70% of their fur. So it's easy to spot and unfortunately really difficult to look at. It sucks when you see something struggling and suffering and you know there's not really much you can do. Yeah, I mean, it it sucks that something so small can can do so much damage to, you know, a huge animal, like a massive animal. If you've ever seen a moose in person, it's like, holy crap, this thing could kick the absolute shit out of me. They are like, gigantic. They're huge. I mean, we just said it provides 700 pounds of meat, so. Yeah, that can give you some reference point as to how big moose really are. Do you want to take a controversial opinion with me here? Yeah. All right, so we might be the first podcast to declare this, but Nick and I are staunchly anti-tick-borne disease. Lyme (laughs) disease, hate it. Any other disease that ticks are causing, hate it. Ticks themselves, hate it. We are an anti-tick-borne illness podcast. Ticks. (laughs) That's all I have to say. I'm done with them. I've gotten one. I've only gotten one in my whole life on the back of my leg, right behind the knee. Are you trying to say your knee pit? Yeah, the knee pit. There you go. Knee got pit. one there too. I got one there too one time. Do you have to like tweeze it out with the head? The, yeah, yeah, the head you intact. Tweeze it out. Exactly. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. And it's just like it feels. Did you ever get like the fever from it too? No, I got it out early enough. Um, it was within like twelve hours of my hike. Oh yeah, you're set. You're fine. Luckily, yeah, I was fine. I was fine. Again, I'm anti-tick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this guy was on me for probably 24 hours plus, so I was I was a little bit sick afterwards. But regardless, I got through it. Live to fight another day, baby. <laughs> All right, moose in northeastern Minnesota have seen their population decline by 64% since 2006. And these are the same type of moose that can be found in Maine and eastern Canada. This is important for the ecosystem, but also for the Ojibwe Native Americans, for whom the moose is sacred in their culture. Moose are considered to be non-human relatives by the people, similar to the relationship between tribes in the Great Plains and the American bison. Moose hair embroidery is a traditional practice. Snowshoe lashings can be made from the hides. Moose antlers can be used to make game pieces. And moose meat was often gifted to say thank you for kind gestures. And going back to April McCormick's teenage hunting story, after killing her first moose, she knelt and prayed, This is something that has given its life so that I can live. 
so that my family can live. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to our, our point in the beginning, you know, killing animals for straight food in order to feed your family. That's, that's all good. You, you have to do it. Like it's, it's, yeah, it's what your ancestors did before you. And, and if it's the way that your family gets food, you have to do it. Absolutely. It's, it's acknowledging being part of the greater ecosystem of which we all are. Exactly. So, yeah. Another issue that moose are struggling with is the threat of wolves, which is one of their natural predators. Moose calves are generally pretty easy for wolves to hunt in the spring, so much so that eight out of every 10 moose calves are now killed within two weeks of being born. And that's a high enough rate that adult moose aren't being replenished when they die. So pair that with adult moose being hunted, the disease we mentioned earlier, and look, it's just hard out here to be a moose. Jeff Tibbetts says that his tribe will stop hunting moose if their numbers get too low, but he's encouraged by the moose population stabilizing over the last two years. They use the number of moose to determine how many hunting permits to give per season, so it's good that they're being proactive. And you know what? Because of that, I definitely consider parasites to be the main issue here. Not really worried about overhunting as long as they keep that promise of, hey, if the numbers get too low, we're done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so just to reiterate, anti-tick, anti-parasite podcast, pro-moose podcast. And still anti-poaching. And still anti-poaching. <laughs> Anti-game hunting for no reason. All right, let's move on to our last one of the week, which comes from the United Nations Environmental Program. And their team writes, Marine Reserve in Latin America brings hope, but conservation challenges remain. Some promising conservation news this week as a 60,000 square kilometer reserve was established between Ecuador and Costa Rica, which will protect sea turtles, manta rays, whales, and sharks. The goal is to secure the biological corridor due to its importance for transitory breeding for the endangered species that we just mentioned, and it's going to be called the Hermanidad Reserve, which means fraternity reserve. According to the authors, Latin America and the Caribbean account for 24% of terrestrial ecoregions and 19% of the world's marine ecoregions, but only half of the biomes in the region reach or exceed 17% protection. So this is going to provide a nice boost to a region that can do more as the world aims to protect 30% of its marine and terrestrial areas. Yeah, and the authors also mentioned that it's crucial to prioritize at-risk species in a diversity of landscapes. Yeah, and that's really important because if we're going to maximize our impact, it's definitely better to protect the critical habitat for endangered species than to just pick some large spot at random and say, well, look how much land we're protecting here. One of the considerations brought up in this article is the idea of keeping ecosystems connected, which is important for species like jaguars who roam throughout a region. Roughly 33% of protected lands in this region are considered conservation islands, which can make it difficult to sustain conservation success. The last thing the article brings up is equity in management of conservation areas. So 60% of the region's protected areas are owned by governments, 14.4% are privately owned, 7% are managed by indigenous people, and 1% are under joint management. UNEP's patron of protected areas, Christine Tompkins, said the government ownership alone is not enough to combat the global extinction crisis and that the role of private and institutional philanthropy is essential. Christine's also the president of the Tompkins Conservation Group, so sounds like she knows what she's doing. Yeah, and her group has actually been a huge contributor in creating 13 national parks in Chile and Argentina, conserving almost 15 million acres. Pretty crazy. 
Yeah, I, I thought it was cool how our organization looks at creating national parks as a starting point and that restoration of the ecosystem is the long-term goal here because creating protected areas is a great start, but it's cool that our organization also focuses on species survival in the long run instead of just saying, well, my hands are tied. We did what we needed to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and the animals that this conservation area are going to protect is essential to the ocean's ecosystem and to our environment. And if you need any proof of that, Go ahead and look no further than whales, baby. And so this is from the World Wildlife Fund. So whales play a significant role in capturing carbon from the atmosphere. Each great whale sequesters an estimated 33 tons of CO2 on average. Well, with the statistic like that, I think all whales are great. Inarguable. Whales are just the best animals. Not all whales are great whales. But all whales are, are great. great. Exactly. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> Thank you for putting that in perspective for everyone. That's what I'm here to do. <laughs> and that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. We're going to be back on Monday to talk about National Geographic's The Last Ice, which you can watch on Disney+. And if you didn't watch it this week, check it out this weekend so you can follow along as we talk about it. Yeah, we mentioned this before, but it's probably my favorite definitely one of my favorite documentaries we've watched so far. So glad we watched it. Yeah. Know you're going to like it if you have time to check it out. If not, you're still going to like the episode of our show. And you know what we're going to say next? Sharing this show, sharing our stuff on social media, that's the best way to help us out. Chat with us on our socials, send us questions, send us story recommendations, potential guests, you know what to do. If you like the show, please give it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'd also love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter, at Matt Norton. We are co-hosted and produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every show. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. You can keep up with the entire TPT team on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Planet Today Pod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. Make sure to follow our socials for an exclusive quick hit every week that we will not be talking about on the podcast. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace.